This is Top Floor, episode 27. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 27. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Lenny Moon started his career as a consultant before braving the startup world during the first dot-com era around the year 2000. After helping to launch SoftBank's office in Seoul, Korea, and doing a stint in venture capital, Lenny headed back to school and emerged with a job in investment banking, perhaps less than enthusiastically. After six years and a financial crisis, he made the decision to do anything it took to return to startups. Since then, Lenny has helped lead several companies from the early days of a handful of employees to Series C funding and 100 plus headcount. As Chief Financial Officer, Chief Operating Officer, and now CEO, Lenny specializes in the uncertainty and messiness of starting a company and marshalling it to maturity. He is CEO of Flycoin, the world's first crypto travel rewards program. Today, we are going to make sure I understand crypto, explain the value proposition of a new type of loyalty program, and learn how innovation can remake the face of travel. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning marketing questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Magdalena. She says... I'm interviewing for a job at a hotel tech startup, and they keep throwing around terms that I don't get. Series A, Series B, Series C. What does that mean? And more to the point, as a marketer, why should I care? I think this is a great question. And we're going to say these words a lot in this episode. So it's a perfect timing for the definitions. What do you think, Lenny? In terms of uh, how do we explain the Series A, Series B, Series C lingo? So, you know, what's really interesting just about uh, the Series A, it follows the alphabet. So typically within startups, the way when people discuss funding, there's a seed stage, there's a Series A, B, and it goes all the way to as many letters as you want. Uh, and different companies actually go through different, you know, just maybe a few rounds of funding before either they go public or they go IPO. So I think the best way to kind of think about it is when people say either seed stage or series A, that's really the first investment that the company receives. So typically in people's mind, when people say series A, it really is early stage. Um, it's when the first round of investors have come in the concept hasn't really been fully developed uh, and the product may not have even been fully materialized. Once you start moving and marching along to Series B or C, at this point, uh, the type of investors who typically invest in these rounds 
are investors where they want to see revenue and they want to see a product. Definitely by the time you get to a Series C. And then DE, at that point, it really gets to, um, if they do reach those letters, um, it's a later stage where investors um, are investing right before either an exit or before the company goes public. And the other way to think about it, too, in terms of riskiness, is an A uh, and B round are really the riskiest kind of stages of a company. Got it. Well, this was a perfect question for you because you began your career in startups, then transitioned into finance after you got your MBA and returned to the startup world. So I have a lot of questions about how this worked. How did having worked in a startup change how you approached your MBA? Do you think you got more out of it? Did you have a different uh, set of priorities? Anything like that? When I got my MBA, it was at a school where in order to get accepted into these programs, you needed anywhere from four to six years of work experience. What that does is it really provides you a diverse pool of classmates where people come from all different backgrounds from all over the world. It really helped me approach that time with the openness of hearing what my classmates would have to say about their work experience about how they kind of approached a certain idea or a thought because I knew that everybody was also coming in with years of professional experience. And I think that that's what makes um, business schools really fun if you choose the right one because you are at a time where everybody is taking this two-year pause in their career to really uh, not only take a break, meet some new people, but also, think about what they want to do for their post-MBA career. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So when people hear the word cryptocurrency, I think they either immediately perk up or their eyes immediately glaze over. I'm going to attempt to level set that term and explain it as a layperson. And then I'd love for you to correct what I get wrong and or expound upon my understanding and add some color to how people should understand that phrase or that term. So without delving too deeply into the technology part that supports it, any form of cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Flycoin, etc., is just the representation of value. Ancient Romans used to represent value using salt. The Finns in Finland used to use squirrel pelts in the Middle Ages to represent value. And we use paper bills or credit cards now to represent value. If we make an agreement between the two of us that a piece of paper with the word 20 on it represents $20 in value, we can also agree that anything else represents that value. In this case, it's crypto. Did I get anywhere close or did I just distract you with my squirrel knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I thought that that was actually a very good explanation. You know, growing up, I collected baseball cards. And uh, if you really think about baseball cards, they're a piece of cardboard with the picture on it of a baseball player and just some numbers and statistics on the back. Yet, there's a very robust market in terms of assessing the value for that, depending on if it's a good baseball player or if it's a funny picture. And you can kind of, if you take a step back, why should a piece of paper, uh, which in the early days, 
in package with some cheap bubblegum <laughs> have any sort of value. It's the value that the market and the, the people and the demand assign to that. And uh, same thing, you can go to prisons, right? And a pack of cigarettes or a bowl of ramen, they have value assigned to it as well, which in a different context, they don't. And so when you really think about value, and in the same way you talked about having a piece of paper that has a 20 written on it, before that used to actually be backed by a corresponding amount of gold, in the US at least, and it's no longer the case. Now it's backed on the good faith, of the government, but at any time, the government could also just add zeros to you know accounts and then increase the money supply. So I think when we think about value, and a lot of times you get into a theoretical discussion on the intrinsic value of money, then you can also um, have a similar discussion in terms of then why is there value to these products, to baseball cards, to a piece of cardboard, right, to uh, a cigarette. And it really is the the market and it's what people assign to that. Let's take a quick break here and we'll get back to my conversation with Lenny Moon, including how his company is creating the world's first crypto travel rewards program. Also, listen all the way to the end for his loading dock story. It nearly broke me because I laughed so hard. It's worth it. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 22nd through 24th at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where deals get done. For more information or to register, visit www.hunterconference.com. Flycoin is a cryptocurrency travel rewards program. Can you explain how it works? Like how crypto savvy do you really need to be to participate in this program? Although now all of our listeners are experts since you gave that excellent explanation. (laughs) (laughs) So what... Flycoin is doing is we, instead of a customer earning a point or a mile that expires, right, that the issuer has full control in terms of what they want to do with that, they can choose, you know, an issuer can choose the expiration date, they can choose how you redeem it, they can dictate how it could be transferred to maybe other points systems. But what's great about cryptocurrency is once it's yours, it's yours. And if you buy the opportunity for that cryptocurrency also to be tradable on some of the crypto exchanges, then it also has cash value because you can always exchange it for cash value. So now what happens is as a customer, what you own, also you have really the full option to do whatever you want with it, whether it's you trade cash or whether it's you redeem it with one of your own our partners within the ecosystem. And so what Flycoin is doing is instead of earning a point, a mile, or whatever equivalent rewards programs that these companies have in the travel and hospitality space, the customer can now earn Fly, which is the token that we've minted. And by earning that, it's theirs. And they can also trade for cash value or they can redeem it with their partners. And that really puts, I would say, the power 
back into the hands of the customer. And it gives them the full optionality of having a reward that really hasn't been that way for the past four years since the beginning of loyalty rewards program. When you think about travel rewards, I guess, sort of in your personal life, does your experience as a frequent business traveler impact what you think the go-to-market strategy should be for Flycoin? How do those two things intersect? You know, I think they intersect in the way where um, a lot of frequent business travelers, they're tied into a loyalty program with a major airline or a major hotel. And they feel very comfortable being a frequent business traveler myself and understanding some of the benefits of the more traditional robust programs um, provides me the context to uh, be able to look at and see where can things change? Where can they be better? But also when I'm having conversations with potential uh, partners on the B2B side, um, sometimes where I can see where they're having trouble and where they're locked in because their way of thinking is strictly tied to what they feel comfortable with. And a lot of times when having conversations with partners that are still kind of steeped in the old way. I know that you just wrapped up a seed round of funding. See, isn't it good we defined all this stuff at the beginning? What do you think are the next steps to reaching critical mass and making this a viable loyalty program across the industry? Yeah, so it was really exciting news. We closed our seed round. It was um, a little over $33 million in our raise. We we're very happy with that. Congratulations. Thank you. So now what we're doing is we're building out the development team, the product team, and uh, which will enable us to build out the technology platform. And so for us now, it's all about growing the distribution to get as wide as possible. So kind of think about deep and wide, wide being the distribution strategy. We want to get uh, fly into as many people's hands as possible. In order to do that, it means securing uh, partnerships with other companies that have loyalty programs currently or have thin programs and really want to think about how they can do rewards differently. Because as we sign up each of these larger partners, then we immediately have a distribution base because now we are distributing fly into their customer base. So first point is to go as wide as possible, and that's going to be by securing additional partnerships. The deep part is utility. How do we increase the use case, the velocity for how people can earn, how people can redeem, um, and even how people can trade once we are tradable on the exchanges. Because if you have that velocity of people always earning or people always redeeming or trading, then you really are creating, I would say, an ecosystem where people uh, are excited to earn, they're excited to redeem. And at that point, we're starting to create additional value for the token. Sort of like your baseball card analogy. It's like uh, those fairs where you can go and trade the cards. I think you have the opportunity to build a community. I mean, travel hackers are crazy. And they will spend hours in forums talking about how to make this happen. So I think there's probably a big opening and opportunity there. So this is a little bit tricky of a question. And it, it harkens back to something that you and I have talked about before which is the idea that the major airlines were able to borrow against the value of their rewards programs during the pandemic. 
So when nobody was flying and the airlines were struggling, they were able to basically finance the operation of their business because their rewards programs were worth so much. So I just wanted to explain that because it makes the question make more sense. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why would an airline or what's the value proposition for an airline to participate in something like Flycoin when they have that stored value that they can borrow against? In other words, like if it's not their own currency, it's not their thing, what's in it for them? That's a good question. First, um, I think I'd like to make the distinction that the airlines that um, completed these significant debt financings within the past couple of years were the major airlines. And they have very robust programs. They also have structured their entities in a way uh, where they could actually uh, borrow off of those entities. Um, and in addition to their rewards programs, they have very robust credit card programs as well, which also provides quite a bit of the value. So I think that for them, I consider them the legacy and the status quo and um, the type of companies that right now, they're not going to want to disrupt anything. They're not going to want to change the status quo. But there are a whole slew of other airlines or other companies in travel hospitality space that don't have uh, fully developed or robust rewards programs that are still trying to kind of find their way uh, with rewards and how to really have it be something that their own customers are excited about that really provides additional value for them. And I think that is really our initial target market. And so what I would say is we provide a few different things. One is we're providing a token, a reward that's actually now, I think, um, quote-unquote, really worth something that the customer uh, could hold on to because it may appreciate in value. But it's also something that's interesting where they're rewarded and, and their loyalty for that airline or that hotel company is rewarded in a different way where they're not forced to spend it back to a closed garden, right? To a walled garden. And so we think that it'll also provide an additional incentive structure for a lot of their own customers to go back and actually spend within that platform. Two, we think that the value of helping to grow the ecosystem is really going to be beneficial for each of these partners because as the ecosystem grows, it not only creates more value for the token, which the customers are going to earn, but there are wonderful kind of network effects that as we grow additional partnerships across industries, then we can work on interesting incentive structures for people to want to spend within other companies within that network. And then the third thing from an operational perspective is what we are also moving toward is being more of a full service solution provider where we're not just selling the token, but we want to um, also provide crypto as a service in some ways where we know that a lot of these companies are not going to have the technological know-how or the in-house crypto expertise to integrate um, their rewards platform with a cryptocurrency. And that's the other thing that we want to provide because I think a lot of companies, they know that rewards, loyalty rewards is going to progress or mature or change in this direction, but they're scared or they just understand that they just don't have the mindshare or the ability. Excellent. I would add to that, that at least from the first mover perspective, whichever of the 
airlines, rental car companies, hotel companies, et cetera, et cetera, go first, have a really sexy story to release. Like this is a really exciting, engaging, unusual piece of information that, you know, the garden variety, we renovated the lobby in the hotel, uh, press release doesn't cover. So every startup begins as an idea, some more successful than others. This is the part of the show where I ask for really specific, tangible, and tactical advice. So I'm going to ask some questions about uh, startups specifically. Most startups, as you've mentioned, require more than just your average level of commitment, long hours, sort of an emotional roller coaster, funding ebbs and flows. Since you've worked at multiple startups, what criteria do you use to, I guess, decide whether or not you think the idea will be a success? Do you have a particular thing that you're looking for before you commit? Or do you just like go with your gut? That's also a really good question. So for me, it's never really just about the idea. Um, because one, taking a step back, startups are difficult. Only a small percentage of them end up actually being successful for so many reasons. And so a lot of times with startups, the reason for success may not necessarily be just the fact that it's a great idea. Sometimes you have a great idea, but the timing isn't right. It might have been a little bit too early or maybe a little bit late. Sometimes you might have had a great idea, but then the people around that idea were not very good in executing that. Or they just made some wrong decisions along the way. Or as they grew, they also made some mistakes. You also could have a mediocre idea, but if you have either a great team or the timing was right, and for some reason, you know, the entire subsector that that startup is in just benefited, then that's also what kind of creates success. I wouldn't have thought of that the mediocre idea could benefit from some good personnel and good luck. It just didn't... I always think of it as like this flash of brilliance, but you're right. I can think of several right now that were eh, so-so, but benefited from being in the right place at the right time. That's right. And also when evaluating a startup, um, it's much more fluid because it's also not a point in time, right? Because people will join startups at different points in time. but the startup journey is a little bit of mosaic of broken glass, right? Where how does it actually come together? And so I might evaluate a startup and think that it has the right team, the right idea. But then a lot of times what makes that company successful or maybe could cause its demise is how you layer on additional resources and people along the way. And sometimes it's the combination of the eighth the 14th and the 30th employee that just were rock stars in their particular area that were in combination together, a big part of the success. And on the other side, there are many times where you might have the great team, the great idea, they were on the right trajectory, but there was a key mistake along the way, right? It could have been a mistake of the CEO or um, the industry, there was some regulation uh, that came in and affected the industry because in a certain way where the core component of the company's, let's say, product or technology was negatively affected. So um, startups are messy for that reason. <laughs> and, uh, but that's also what makes it exciting because it's not a point in time. It's not one particular thing. It's everything 
you know, on a comprehensive, holistic level uh, that over time also changes, right? It's sometimes the chances get better, sometimes they get worse. And so that's why it's really hard to evaluate at one point in time, whether you think based either just on the idea or the people. That said, I think that there are certain things to look at, which provide, um, at least when you assess it at a certain point in time, a startup in a way where they might have a greater chance of success. You basically battle through all the competing things that could cause difficulties along the way. And that is, you know, really looking at who the core, I would say, founder, leader, CEO is at that time, because sometimes that changes too. <laughs> uh, maybe who the investor base is. And in terms of the idea, um, that's really the assessment to up to you where is this, how do you feel about the idea? It makes sense. And are the people who are there currently um, there have the foresight to either continue on with this idea or the nimbleness to maybe pivot a little bit along the way? If you look at startups, a lot of them have pivoted quite a bit too. And I think the understanding is you know, there's a probably a core idea that makes sense. Um, and then there are other ideas that are more ancillary. How do you know what to focus in on as your core so you don't always get either confused or distracted by the shiny light right, that comes through? And so I think that if you look and you're assessing a startup, definitely, you know, your, your sense on the idea, the timing of that idea, the people who are with that company at that point in time, you know, the investor base at that point in time. Um, and then really, it's still super risky, depending on what it is. You just have to jump in. <laughs> so basically, there's all these criteria. And then at the end of the day, go with your gut. <laughs> go with your gut. And I think what ends up kind of being a big component is the chemistry. How are the people that either are leaving the company or that you're going to work with? Because within all the messiness, within all the late hours, and a lot of times, honestly, startups are quite a bit of work, you're going to be in the trenches with certain people for some period of time, right? Because people kind of come in and out. And uh, within all the difficulty of work, at some point, you still have to enjoy it, right? Because um, sometimes when you're in the trenches, you enjoy the communication, the interaction with whoever you know, you're working with and that team. That makes it easier. That makes it more fun. It sounds so much like what it's like to open hotels. It's the same thing. Like if you have a good team in a pre-opening of a hotel, you don't care how hard it is. I mean, it still sucks. It's hard. But you get so much value from the camaraderie and the sort of the being with the, the people that you like, you know, that it's worth it. From a personal perspective, do you have any travel tips that you would share that you think could help people improve their business trip, maybe a personal trip? You know, one thing that I always like to do um, is whenever I go travel, I will be intentional about trying to meet up uh, with somebody there, uh, not necessarily you know, for professional reasons, but it could be a business school classmate. It could be an undergrad classmate. It could be you know, a former colleague. Because travel provides the opportunity for you to obviously, whether it's personal and in particular business travel, to be in locations that you're not always at. And um, the reason why I think that it's intentional is, look, when you travel, let's say even on business travel, you're tired. You have meetings all day. But sometimes um, just taking that extra intentional step 
of emailing or calling someone and say, hey, let's meet up for a quick drink or a coffee, really helps, I think, provide um, a more genuine connection when having also building your professional network. And so whenever I travel, I like to um, be intentional about, okay, who do I know in this particular city or who, I, who have I not seen in a while? Rather than, oh, I'm going to be so tired. I don't want to talk to anybody. And um, I think just those little things, when you do that enough, you look back and after four or five years of maybe doing that, and you have a network of people that, um, uh, whether it's personally or professionally, that I think feel a little bit more genuine about any interaction that you have with them going forward. I love that advice. And you are so right. Like, I felt like you were calling me out because I'll go on trips and think like, oh, so-and-so lives there, so-and-so lives there. But you know what? I'm way too tired to call anybody. Good night. I'm going to take this advice. I promise on my next trip, I'm going to try to do this with at least one person. So at this point in the show, we usually do a little crystal ball gazing in order to predict the future. Obviously, you think Flycoin is the future of travel rewards. So you don't need to make the prediction. Instead, would you walk us through what we should expect to see from the company over the next year or so? In terms of Flycoin, you're going to expect us to see grow in actual employees and personnel because we are on a hiring spree because we need to hire the engineers and the product development and the biz dev people to really grow out the business. Uh, you are going to see us announce certain partnerships, which could be very exciting in terms of our ecosystem. And these will be companies across the general travel hospitality space. Um, and then if we've also done what we've um, needed to do, you will also see um, our token eventually be tradable on some of the centralized crypto exchanges as well. Very cool. What about outside of Flycoin? What's one prediction you would make for the future of travel? And you know we're recording this, so I will play it back for you at the end of the year and we'll see if it came true. So I can't think of anything too bold. If I did, I'd probably want to start a company around that. Um, <laughs> That's but, a secret. Uh, <laughs> but the, the trends are, I think customers are seeking more customized, integrated experiences. And I think that the companies now have the technology and the data to provide that. So now when I'm thinking, for example, about a business trip, two years from now, let's say if I'm flying somewhere and then I'm going to go rent a car and then eventually stay at a hotel, I expect that that experience to be more seamless and customized. So what I mean by that is I get off you know, the airplane, I go to the rental car, um, and I'm getting into a Tesla. And that Tesla would say, welcome, Lenny. We know that your reservation is at you know this hotel. Here are the directions to it and three good restaurants that you can try based on your preferences. Oh, I love that idea. And then that car, whether it's uh, through a driverless system or through me, I'll take that car to the hotel. And then when I get to the hotel, I'll have a easy check-in experience, but then I'll have a blank kind of digitized portrait uh, that uh, might have art that fits my taste a little bit and other things within the room that will be, I think, more customized to me. I mean, you've already seen trends with that, right? Eight years ago, you can drop in your iPad within the speaker um, and uh, put on your own music. But I think that there's going to be another level that's just going to do it in a more interesting way that will just enhance the customer experience. So integration and customization, um, but we'll leave it to the 
the people that I'm sure are already thinking about that sort of experience. Well, I hope all of those things come true because I'm very down for that entire experience that you described. Y'all, the story you're about to hear made me howl with laughter. I truly had tears rolling down my face. Everyone in hospitality has these stories, funny, crazy, or just plain weird. And I'd love to hear yours. If you are attending the Hunter Conference, March 22nd through 24th, we will be there hosting Loading Dock Live, where you can record your best Loading Dock story for a future episode of Top Floor. To sign up for Loading Dock Live, visit topfloorpodcast.com forward slash dock. Okay, folks, before we tell Lenny goodbye... We are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Lenny, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Uh, Okay, so this will be fun. Um, This actually involves some business travel about uh, 23, 24 years ago. I think it was in 1998, 99. I was a consultant at the time. And I was traveling from Chicago to Washington, D.C., almost on a, actually on a weekly basis, every Monday through Thursday. And I remember distinctly because it was such a significant event in my life that I think I still have a little bit of PTSD from. (laughs) But I was, uh, you're familiar with, with, uh, obviously, both um, Washington, D.C. and the Marriott, but um, it involved L'Enfant Plaza. Mm-hmm. Which uh, and a building that was right near the subway there, and it also involved um, the Marriott over in I believe it was Crystal City, which, if I remember from my memory, is two to three stops from the Longfellow Plaza stop. Right there in Arlington, sort of near the Pentagon. Yep, yep. And so I was traveling to DC every week, as I said, and um, for lunch most of the days. On the bottom floor of the Longfellow Plaza, it's probably not there anymore, but there was like this big cafeteria that had different types of fast food, whether it was Italian, um, just general burgers, American, tacos. And then there was this one kind of station that had fast food sushi. Hold on a second. And, um, I need you to say that again. What was the style of food? <laughs> so those are two words that, by the way, should never go together. Exactly why I wanted you to repeat it. Fast food and sushi. And what made it worse was it wasn't just fast food sushi, but it was the kind that you weighed. You just put everything into this plate and you weighed it at the end. So they didn't even distinguish whether it was salmon, tuna, or like (laughs) California maki. It was just, we don't care. (laughs) Probably because they didn't care about the hygiene either. And you just weigh it all at the end. Wow. So. I was I was hungry and I you know I was young I was thinking I'm just like okay you know what fast food sushi I'm hungry I just need to grab a quick meal for lunch I'm just gonna put a bunch of stuff on this plastic plate weigh it and then get back to work so that's what I did <laughs> and so then I had my lunch which was probably you know call it around noon and then about four four and a half hours later something didn't feel right I'm sitting at my desk and uh, I was on the verge of knowing that something is about to happen. And this was now getting to approach around five o'clock, which in Washington, D.C. is a really busy time to get in the metro. But in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I haven't hit full-blown nausea just yet. So I'm just going to make my way on down to 
to Metro. And I think it's just three stops. So I'm just going to go from here. I go downstairs into the basement and then I just wait for, you know, the, the Metro to come. And it's right around when everybody else is just getting out of work because it's kind of the government time. And, uh, and so I have my bags and then, um, the subway comes, the doors open and everybody gets in. So it's the kind where, you know, you see those pictures of like even the, the Japanese subways where they're just pushing you yes. <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, no place to sit. And, uh, and so what I do is I'm like, okay, I just need to hold on to something. So I hold on to one of the top metal bars and I'm six foot three. So I stand out and I'm, you know, uh, noticeable. So I, I hold on to one of the bars. And then at this point I'm thinking, oh, I'm not feeling good at all. But it's too late because I have about seven people touching at the same time. The doors close. And then the train starts moving, right? And you get that rocking motion. And I'm already knowing that I'm not feeling good. And so at some point in my mind, I go, I, I just need to vomit. What am I going to do? So while holding on to this metal bar, I just clench my mouth and I dig my mouth into my arm, you know, the higher arm that's holding onto the metal bar. And I did that because I just want to make sure that I can get to the next stop. That's all I wanted. I didn't care about making it to the hotel. I just wanted to get to the next stop. The next thing I remember is I'm on the floor of the subway, right? The train had already stopped. And I hear in the background, man down, man down. There's a man down. And I kind of, I look up and somebody kind of was like, like looking over me and they're kind of nudging me. And I look up and <laughs> the entire subway had kind of cleared around me. Um, and what was really nasty was um, even within kind of just this, uh, this somewhat vague mindset, because I, I wasn't clearly like uh, woken up yet fully. I saw my vomit all <laughs> over the subway car. And what was really sad is there was people with my vomit over them, like freaking out. They're just trying to wipe themselves. They don't know what to do. And some people were wiping off their face. And keep in mind, I had sushi too. So it's like multicolored, yellow, red. And, uh, and I'm sitting there and I just, I don't know what's going on. And then I'm kind of like, you know, getting up and there's a guy ahead of me um, or on, around me and says, are you okay? And I just kind of look up at him. And I don't know why I said this because maybe I didn't want them thinking that I was I don't know, like drunk or taking drugs. I just looked at him and go, oh, uh, it was fast food sushi. And so then as I kind of get up, what was worse is not only was my vomit like on people's clothes and on the walls, uh, but it was actually there's a pool of vomit um, on the floor. So basically what I realized what had happened was um, – my body forced myself in some way to go unconscious and I'm holding on to this rail and I started vomiting like a sprinkler on people. And then after that, I must've been <laughs> hit the ground and I continued to vomit um, while I'm on the floor of the subway. So, How is this possible? <laughs> so at, you know, I'm not even embellishing. I'm actually toning it down. I'm toning the story down because for, for your listeners, but, um, so then, so then when I get up, uh, you know, people are just, obviously they, they position themselves on the other side of the car. Whoever could get off just got off, obviously, cause they need to clean themselves. Right. And I remember cause I was in the very front car right next to 
um, you know, the, uh, uh, the driver or whatever you call it, because he was able to come back to the, to the next car. But what's really uncomfortable is that um, because everybody positioned themselves on the back of the car, uh, the very front part of the car actually faces back and is rear facing. So here I am, obviously already super embarrassed. I have vomit all over myself. I see the vomit on the floor. I see my vomit on people's clothes. I see the vomit on the wall. And I'm just looking down because I'm just embarrassed. I'm just waiting for two more stops to get to Crystal City. Um, and uh, But it was like the longest two stops in my life because I'm just waiting because you know, people are talking. And finally, when when it's Crystal City, I just run out of the car. I just run up the stairs. Uh, and then I um, finally get to my hotel room and I just quickly, you know, change out of everything and then proceeded like the worst night of my life because I just <laughs> basically was still sick, fever, still vomiting. And I actually thought like I was in so much pain. I thought I was going to die. I'm like, I didn't oh, know. What no. So I remember distinctly that I, um, I crawled myself over to the front door and it was one of those chains where it was just a bar. So I kind of opened the door, put the bar in because I was thinking if I needed to call the front desk or somebody that it was going to be easy for them to open the door and come bring me to the hospital. That's oh how bad I no. So then, uh, so then I got through that morning and um, I actually, or I got through that night and in the morning I went over, you know, to, to work at the office and, uh, and in my mind, I was embarrassed still from the prior evening. And I thought that maybe what if there's somebody on the subway or the metro that recognizes me? So I kind of just put my face down. I don't want anybody to recognize me. That is like forever just seared in my mind because it was my fast food sushi story, but it was one of the most embarrassing <laughs> moments of my entire life. Well, one, one other just quick little detail is it was... One picture that I remember is one guy had a beard on the subway, right? He was one of the guys I think vomited on and he was trying to clean himself, but I could still like, I could still see, you know, probably maybe a little bit of tuna because it was red, um, you know, on his beard and just, I felt so horrible. So, um, I've, uh, I've never eaten fast food sushi since. Um, (laughs) I was going to ask you, what about (laughs) non-fast food sushi? (laughs) Well, it actually, you know, Psychologically, it took me a few months, to eat, and I, I love sushi. It took me a few months to even just um, be able to stomach regular sushi, uh, like good high quality sushi. So I just stayed away for a few months, and then finally I, you know, started eating sushi because I just I liked it. But then now I have a, a certain standard um, that if it's the kind that you weigh at the end <laughs> of a, uh, <laughs> that doesn't meet that your standard. Sushi by the pound. I don't even know how to wrap this show up because I'm crying laughing from this story. Lenny Moon, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to have nightmares about fast food sushi, but I know that our listeners got some great tips (laughs) and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Susan. I had fun in this conversation and look forward to maybe the next one. Thanks so much for being here. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 27. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 